Good morning there! It is so lovely to see you this beautiful Monday morning. Thank you so much for joining us for Daily Devotions through Redeeming Life Fellowship. I got a sip of coffee here, and we're ready to dive right into Daily Devotions, which if you're following along with our reading plan, you'll know that we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23a, which in, in most uh, English translations, there's a separation of paragraphs that fall between uh uh, that, that basically split, split verses, verse 23, what is regarded as verse 23, into two halves. So you'll have to get the second half of verse 23 tomorrow, so I hope you're not too upset about that. Uh, but you guys are pretty patient, understanding, and accommodating. You're not going to come at us with, you know, knives, pitchforks, and torches and burn our house down. That would be a little bit extreme, but we're going to leave that behind us and jump right into what is uh, a really, a very pivotal moment in all of the book of Acts. Because remember, uh, we're tracing out where it is the gospel is going, where, where people are receiving the good news, and where sometimes people are rejecting the good news, and they're responding with hostility. But that the, the gospel is still going to seed, and it's still affecting people. And, and uh, these miracles uh, that are still signs of the coming of the kingdom of God, that, that God's hand is still instrumental through the works of the apostles, uh, that the, this thing that we call the church is not just uh, a religious sect of Judaism that's just becoming pervasive with all kinds of new ideas. This is the power of the kingdom of God in their midst, and that's a big deal. And we're still tracing about where this is going. And remember, uh, Acts 1.8, uh, where uh, Jesus tells them that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And by here, by the time that we reach Acts chapter 10, we can see that the gospel has been going out. The persecution of Stephen, or uh, the martyrdom of Stephen, the, Stephen and the, the persecution that followed subsequently, the, that the spread of the gospel is a direct result of this persecution that's uh, getting hotter and hotter and fiercer and fiercer in, in Jerusalem, that's pushing uh, Christians outward and they're taking the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere they go. Uh, they just live and breathe the good news of God because it has changed their lives from the inside out. What a beautiful thing. But there's something interesting is that as we can see the gospel going out, you can also see in the way in which when the gospel goes to seed, it has a way of testing and challenging cultural and religious barriers. And to the point where you're forced to ask, when you think about the gospel, if this is true, if it's really good news, is it just true within my culture, within my religion, um, or is this actually true and is this good news for everybody? Because what seems to be the case up until this point is that even as the gospel is going out geographically, that it's still only being directed towards the Jews. Uh, so that uh, it's good news that's landing and affecting pockets of the diaspora, the Jews who were spread out through all the world, so that, in theory, the apostles could say, oh, yes, we're taking the gospel you know, throughout to the ends of the earth, 
that we're taking it to the Jews who are in the ends of the earth. But that, in all reality, um, the the we believe that the good news of the kingdom of God is primarily a thing for the Jews. Maybe gerrymander is the is the the right verb uh, to say that when the gospel is going out, we're going to decide which uh, neighborhoods or which uh, places where uh, where we think that it's most appropriate for the gospel to go to this person or that person. And that inevitably means that somebody's going to be left out. And all of this having to do, in some measure or another, with this idea that God really does actually show favorites. Uh, we could think of it this way. If I can see that uh, God has, um, that he loves me and that he um, shows me his grace and that, generally speaking, I'm a decent person, I tend to think of myself as being pretty likable in the sight of God. And there, therefore, people who are most like me, I assume, happen to be God's favorites. Where if God shows particular favor on one person, and doesn't appear to be showing particular favor uh, on another person, that that must therefore mean that somehow God is actually having favorites, and that God actually likes the Jewish people more than he likes these uncircumcised Gentiles. Uh, that uh, maybe it's true that, um, that, that, that God actually, at the end of the day, really does play favorites with certain people. And that if he's, if he's playing favorites with people, then the all, only thing that we have to do is just take the good news of Jesus Christ to God's favorites. And which usually ends up being that we regard our favorites as God's favorites and say, you're the type of person who I think is suitable and cut out to be a Christian. Maybe this is good news is for you. But you, eh, you know, um, you've got a long ways to go. I don't, I'm not sure if this is worth the time and the energy. Um, you know, God doesn't really appear to be showing favorites or, or, or doesn't really take a liking to a person like you. That means, therefore, you're probably actually not worth my time. And if we're not careful, we can be caught up in playing favorites with the gospel, in believing that the good news really does just go to God's favorites, who just uh, conveniently happen to be our favorites. And we're going to get to this, how this gets really turned on its head in tomorrow's devotional, but it's coming to a head with this uh, person named Cornelius, who is a Roman soldier, but he's also a God-fearer. And what the Bible usually means by a person is a God-fearer is a person who is not a Jew, is um, an uncircumcised Gentile, but uh, can attend services at the synagogue, uh, that they demonstrate piety um, and a responsiveness to the... the um, the Jewish ethic that's rooted in God's self-revelation to the point where even if culturally speaking, he's on the outside, he's shown a tender-hearted response to the revelation of, of this holy God. And, um, and in this response, he's actually forsaken, uh, probably, um, the worship 
of all these other gods to say, um, if I believe that this God is real and all the other gods of this world are shams, I'm going to be responsive to him. So that um, my fear of God is the sort of thing that motivates and that energizes and that, that, that influences my, my actions, not just towards these idols, but also towards um, uh, uh, people who are different than me. So that uh, Cornelius is a person who's uh, shown gifts uh, or showered gifts on to the poor and uh, been very benevolent in his power and just in his dealings with people. So that um, all of this matters because he's actually responded to this revelation that he's received of a holy God. And this is only going to come to more fruition when he... Uh, uh, when God arranges in his power through um, a lot of special convincing uh, by the work of these divine angels to, to, to bring together a, a Jew and a centurion having fellowship in the same house, which is forbidden by Jewish law, that this thing is going to happen because this is a part of what God has intended from the very beginning. So with that in mind, let's read... Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 23a. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius, Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. At about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the, the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, just imagine with me that those moments in that time when... Uh, your stomach is just growling because it needs food and is hungry for something, not just, just any kind of food, but you know how when you're hungry and even, you know, the mediocre food just tastes really delicious because you're just that hungry. But imagine uh, being in that moment and then being served food that is a stench to your nostrils and that the very thought of putting that food into your mouth would actually make you vomit. That's the kind of experience that that 
Simon is, is feeling uh, after he's gone into a hungry trance. Um, and uh, he's, he's, you know, he's ready to eat. Uh, the table's being set and all that's set before him uh, that to, to, to eat is just unclean food. And um, that in the same way that he would feel this kind of repulsion to want to fill your stomach with unclean food when you're starving um, would be the same kind of repulsion to, to associate, um, to fraternize, to bring the good news of the gospel to somebody like Cornelius. To, to um, an uncircumcised Gentile and to eat at his house. Those are, you know, rough equivalents. And so let's, let's read, continue reading. Verse 14, Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Uh, the same episode happens thrice over. And uh, doubtless, at each time, Peter protests and says, No, Lord, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then God responds again and says, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And isn't it interesting that through this, um, God is at the work of, of taking things, the people who are impure, and cleansing them. Peter is invited to participate in the cleansing work of, of God, and he resists. Uh, but even through this moment, through this constant resisting, it seems as though it's pressing deeper and deeper into Peter's mind and into his heart. The very fact that God is at work of cleansing the, the impure, and by doing this, this is beginning to prepare his heart for not just this ministry to the Gentiles that's going to be crossing cultural barriers, but the whole church is going to have to, to is going to, to change dramatically as it's, um, as Peter is the first person to, to cross this cultural barrier. So let's continue. All right, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopping at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And at this point, we can probably understand Still at this point, some of Peter's hesitation and trepidation to that if based upon this vision that he's seen, that this means that he has to follow through with this type of action that God himself is preparing him for. And thankfully, oh gosh, thank God that he uses this kind of vision to be able to prepare Peter for the action that he's going to take place and not just pushing him out cold turkey. Yeah, anyway, um, it says this, verse 21, Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for. 
Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him, You have to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. Ah, so, uh, barrier number one is uh, it's, it's, it's coming down, and it's about to, to fall down in the most dramatic fashion. And it's, very, it's a very interesting thing to my mind about how, historically speaking, it's the the gospel has a tendency to germinate and to go to seed and to bear fruit on the fringes which it's so fascinating to read something like this and then get a historical perspective of, of approximately 100 150 years later where there is virtually there, there's it's almost non-existent um, any kind of Jewish representation of the Christian faith. It's almost all goes to the Gentiles. And it's so remarkable that in such a relatively short period of time, this, this movement of the gospel that is thoroughly Jewish in its character and in its substance uh, would, in almost a century's time, uh, get to the point where um, there are almost no Jews who are part of the church. And as a matter of fact, it's people from within the Gentile community who are being sent as t uh, uh, to testify as apologists back to the Jewish community and trying to persuade them to come back to the Messiah that God had sent them in the first place. Uh, so, again, it's... It's so interesting how, how when the gospel goes to seed, it has a way of affecting and challenging a lot of cultural presuppositions that, uh, that have a way of separating or keeping people away from receiving or having any opportunity to be able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, I don't want to be the person who's... Um, who's throwing up barriers to, and that I become the judge about who and who, who does and who doesn't get to be participants in, in the kingdom of God, who's worthy of hearing the good news and who's not worthy, uh, to assume that God has favorites and that my business is just to tend to and serve God's favorites. No, uh, and all of this is going to be especially important by the time that we eventually get to the next book after Acts, which is Romans, where Paul uh, draws this out in very extensive detail about how Jew and Gentile alike are all in desperate need for a savior because we're all slaves to sin. And that, um, that each and every one of us um, has a common need for a loving savior who died and who offers us new life in him, as we'll come to find out and read about in uh, Acts chapter 11, uh, when the, 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 the Jews rejoice uh, that the, the good news um, goes to the Gentiles too. 
and but I've gotten too far ahead of myself. So uh, bless you. Thank you so much for taking time to join us. If you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, uh, take opportunities if you can to be able to uh, support us uh, financially uh, here for this um, ministry here in Whitley County and uh, in Huntington County. And I pray God would bless you and keep you and, and use you in profound ways uh, to, to, to bring the life-changing power of the good news of Jesus Christ to, to places that, that will just blow your mind. And they're places that you would have never expected, but um, they're places that bear fruit because God's hand is at work um, in and through you. So God bless you. Take care and I'll see you next time.